This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Introducing new players. TV endings. Pedro Ziviani. And Rao Dive Voices. Prophecies of Doom. Protagonists swapping through the wilderness. Battles of mud and blood. But at least in Gloom of Thrones, you know the story will get an ending. That's right. Gloom of Thrones is here. We talked about this game in April during the Kickstarter. But now you can get your hands on this game of delightful regicide at your friendly local game store. I do love me some regicide. In Gloom of Thrones, players take control of a noble family, make their life horrible, and then kill them. At the end of the game, the most miserable player wins. It's a great way to practice up for holiday gatherings. Gloom of Thrones is available in friendly local game stores starting December 2nd. Stop in and pick up your your copy or go to atlas-games.com slash gloom of thrones or follow the link in the show notes because as the saying goes if you aim for the porcelain throne you best not miss The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us all once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And look at that. We got our Doritos. We got our miniatures. We got our dice. We got our Mountain Dew. Holy Goodness, we got a new player, Robin. Ah, they brought the Mountain Dew. Look at that. A new player? A new player. This is a game already in progress, Ken. The game is already in progress. How can we handle the the very real threat of more people having more fun? Right. And in order to successfully threaten them with more fun, we need to uh, provide it for them by making sure that their access to an already established uh, and therefore uh, perhaps complicated uh, game uh, is, uh, is smooth and fun and uh, makes them uh, not feel uh, too much like the new person. Right. Um, and uh, uh, you may think, Robin, did you just recently have this experience in your uh, game, therefore inspiring you to do this segment? Why, yes, I did. So that put the uh, issues in sharp relief. I happen to be in the middle of a long uh, sandbox game. Uh, so uh, that means that uh, not only is it a, a new game, but it's not something where you can just sort of start with a new mission and then... Uh, they, you know, if if you've got first of all, it's just sort of a, a st- straight up kind of D and D or F twenty game where it's we just go into the dungeon and we knock stuff over and there's not much continuity. Well, it's not an issue. You just say, well, this time the barbarian has joined you. Yeah, you you show up at the bar where everybody hangs around and. Uh, you know, obviously this guy's been hanging around for a while, and and often you are also uh, explaining why another character has gone away. Right? You mm-hmm. you chances are you're adding someone to your group uh, because uh, you have had attendance problems, possibly somebody's left. So you might just say, oh, yeah, it's uh, you're the cousin of the last guy. Or you, you heard from uh, you've heard, heard a lot about the, this group of uh, plotless dungeon uh, crashers. And, uh, and now you're there. So that's easily enough resolved. Uh, a mission game is also relatively easy to resolve because you can sort of have a fresh start. 
uh, where there's a new case of the week, and then you can fold in all of the continuity elements as they become relevant. Right. So if in it's the- like you re- I've had this happen in uh, Fall of Delta Green, where I've had new players join the group, and hey, they join the group at the beginning of the mission, and there's a new person at the secret briefing, and it's like. Uh, we brought this character on because the adventure takes place in the Adirondack ma- mountains in winter. And I told him to, uh, buy lots of athletics and get the special training in skiing so that there's a specialist reason that he's there. Yes. And why are the rest of you all been together? Oh, that's a need to know basis. <laughs> well, that's, that's, but that's above your classification level. Exactly. Yes. Uh, yeah. So there are some uh, games where you can sort of play with the idea of being, uh, the rookie. And that can be part of the fun is that they, uh, don't necessarily uh, uh, know everybody or what's going on all we at have, once. We have had three out of three new players all turn wide-eyed to the other players and say, are aliens real? <laughs> um, and this reminds me of the in the uh, great police procedural homicide, Life on the Street. Uh, they uh, Reed Diamond was on the show either for a year or two years, and then the the uh, Munch character plays by Richard Belzer. They finally have a scene together and he talks about, you know, uh, he's glad that he's no longer uh, considered the new guy. And, and uh, Munch says to him, you're not even on my radar, <laughs> which is a, a great sort of twist on uh, the, the idea that the uh, main members of a cast all have instant ensemble camaraderie with you. Whereas in real life police departments, there may well be people who've never worked together and don't care just because, you know, you may think of yourself as a series regular, but maybe the other series regular doesn't. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a, that's a good practice in life is just sort of to look and say, am I the series regular or the wacky neighbor? <laughs> um, or, well, the worst thing is being the recurring wacky right, neighbor. Yeah, right. That's right. Uh, and with, with that kind of guy. Right. But here we've got a, a genuine series regular and uh, you, uh, and we've got a big bunch of uh, continuity to deal with. And it's uh, all uh, a player-driven game where they are following up previous uh, leads and developments. So uh, what do we do to make the new uh, player uh, feel uh, not only uh, uh, welcome, uh, which I'm sure they will be in the part of the game before Mm -hmm. you start playing your characters, uh, but also welcomed by the other uh, fictional characters that we'll be interacting with and to feel like you're oriented uh, in the storyline. So uh, one thing to watch out for is uh, sometimes other players, the old hands, will enjoy the shtick of giving their own highly biased version of events, right. uh, which is hilarious for them. Mm-hmm. But you have to make sure that it is uh, not off-putting because, first of all, you're being dropped into the middle of somebody else's set of in-jokes. And yeah. uh, so, first of all, as a game master, you uh, as this starts to happen, I don't think you want to squash squash it and tell people to stop, uh, you know, being fun. Yeah. But uh, you have to, I think, sort of extensively footnote everything. You're sort of the the Stan Lee of the comic book, right. With the asterisks, and you can, them, well, and you can do that with things like, well, you've been around these woods and you kind of heard the story differently. You know, or your <laughs> bullshit detector ability tells you that someone very, very close to you is bullshitting right now. Yes. Or, <laughs> y- you know, Praxians and you know their their hatred of uh, all plants larger than a sagebrush. So that uh, this uh, this character's rant against agriculture, uh, you must realize, comes from his cultural perspective. And it's perhaps not a 
uh, objective uh, description of, of what's going on. And so, uh, so part of this is to realize that the character, uh, if not the player, is already a seasoned part of this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're already a competent adventurer uh, and, and know some stuff. And uh, this brings us around to the, uh, the other technique that I would use, which is find an immediate reason to make them the star of the first episode and a thing that immediately hooks them into what's going on in the uh, the series overall. So uh, the uh, in this case, the the character played a uh, a follower of, of the Earth Goddess, and uh, it turned out well. Where uh, was he all this time away from his buddies? I established well, you actually do have a, a pre-existing relationship with all of these other characters, but the reason you haven't been hanging around with them is that they all think you're dead. And uh, not only do they think that, but you are dead. You're at the bottom of a mass grave, and the Earth Goddess uh, brings you uh, down to her uh, underground Earth uh, womb and uh, sends you back, grants you life again, and sends you back to the surface to go solve the problem. And she's given you the big important artifact that you need in order to uh, be the crucial uh, bulwark against the, the enemy that you're going to fight. So that immediately there... Uh, you are super important. You're important enough in this case. A goddess brought you back to life. That's pretty great. And also, you've got the thing that the rest of the group needs uh, so that uh, you are already at the center of the plot line that the rest of the group has spent the last 9 to 12 sessions uh, slowly piecing together. You're already not just up to speed, but you've got something to tell them uh, that they don't know already. Yeah, I mean, providing the, the, it's sort of a two part thing. You have to do the, the character part and the world part. And the world part is, uh, generally the easiest because you just figure out what is the, what, what, what's the player's goal? What are they trying to go toward? The new person just coincidentally happens to be super valuable or helpful or wired in or connected or in some other way. A thing that if they were an NPC, they'd still be dealing with and trying to protect and everything else. But since they're a PC, they can actually help fight. So good for them. It just depends on your world. So in a nice Black Agents game, the new person could have gotten away from the vampire death camp in Syria. Or the new person could have been uh, a defector from the GRU with information that they've been looking for. Or there's a million ways to introduce someone in a, in a, in a game like that. And similarly with other sorts of sandboxy world things. Since the goal of the game is to uncover cool plastic dinosaurs in the sandbox, your character has a lead on a plastic dinosaur, is is connected to the green plastic dinosaurs that uh, are the best kind, everyone knows. And so uh, that player character can uh, provide narrative momentum and many sandbox games uh, through no fault of their own sort of lack narrative momentum a little bit as the players are piecing things together. They could be a little nitrous booster uh, for, for that, for that moment. Uh, then within the player character group, you have the advantage of not being pinned in. So you can say, you know, Hey, my friend, uh, Sharla is coming to join the game, uh, next week, or our friend Sharla is coming to join the game, whatever. Um, let's all figure out what would make this group of hard bitten murder hobos welcome a new player, a new member. And it might be, oh, we have to all know them and they have to have been dead. That's the only way that they would get to come back. Or it might be, well, as long as they've got um, uh, Mithril, uh, we we welcome all people with Mithril. And so you just make sure that they show up with a bag of Mithril that I just don't know what to do with all this Mithril. And then that that works out just fine. And you provide a 
because the players can decide what the in-game motives of their characters are. You put them on the table and you just make sure that it slots in with the minimum of necessary, who are you again, uh, type moment. I, I think that the, you know, like you say, in F20, it's, it's honored by custom that you walk in and whoever has the green player character light over their head is someone you go toward. Yes. It's it shaped like a D4. Exactly. And, and, and rotates slowly. And then, um, uh, but, but in other uh, genres, and even in F20, it's easy enough just to talk to the player character, the players and say, who would your characters innately want or need to pal around with now? And you just make sure that to the extent you can, you uh, shape the new character to fit into that that needs set. Now, one thing is, is if it's a new, if the player is new to you completely, not just new to this game and joining you after going off and doing something else for a while, uh, you also, I think, want to be very uh, attentive to what it is that they seem to want. And yeah. of course, the standard way of uh, determining that is to look at their character sheet. So first of all, I would advise... Uh, don't just assign them a pregen. No. Well, you don't want to do that necessarily in any long-running campaign, I feel. No. Um, but particularly because uh, I, I think we're sort of going at it from the, well, what what do the rest of the group want? The rest of the group may all go, well, we need another cleric. Right. We, we want but, an alchemist or whatever. Right. Yeah. And that makes sense from that point of view. But the new player uh, may not want to play an alchemist or worse, may sort of happily go along with playing an alchemist even though that's not the kind of character that expresses what it is that they want to do so mm -hmm. that you, i think that you want to start with what character do you want to play and then go to the rest of the group if necessary and say well uh why do you uh really want to have a bard with the party right oh we all suffered traumatic head injury that's why <laughs> that giant hit us really hard right and again some of the uh, you may be able to work things out so that it makes perfect sense or uh, build that bridge. And so that if you have the person, you know, they create the uh, demolitions expert. Uh, well, first of all, everybody yeah. wants to Who doesn't demolitions want that? <laughs> That's a self, yeah. self-answering question. Like, uh, but also like they created you know, an ice cream truck. <laughs> right. But then you say, well, is it okay if you're, uh, a demolitions expert uh, is originally from the Appalachian region uh, where you happen to be going for this first mystery. And so that way uh, you are uh, taking their concept and you are either just as game master uh, solving the problem by explaining to the rest of the group why they want this person there or uh, helping to, you know, why is it that you, uh, uh, you know, need another speedster on the team or uh, uh, whatever it is. But the, I, I would be careful not to just uh, follow into the temptation if if you are replacing someone that you don't necessarily want to make that the new person feel that they're just playing a shadow version of, of what you had before. Again, some right, or slotting into something that literally anyone could do. Right now, some games do kind of impose that in in F twenty. If you if you lose a cleric. The rest of the group really, really, really wants the new person to play a cleric. And so and in a gumshoe team, you know, you need to have the skills that the that are now missing from the party after death or departure, uh, because otherwise designing the adventures becomes harder. Right. Um, so the trick then, I think, is to say, well, this is the hole in the group um, and this is the character that you are replacing. Uh, and just as you would on a TV series, the new person who plays comes in to play the Star Trek doctor uh, if they're an interesting character and not a not a Dr. Pulaski, uh, <laughs> then they are markedly different from the one who went before. And part of the the enjoyment is the group getting used to the quirks of the new person. So it's like, well, the old character was like this. We need you to have these skills. 
but how would you like to turn that concept on its head? And that's something that I think entails a level of interesting friction, which works if your group is interested in that and, and good at it. Yeah. And a lot of that is, is going to come down to what is going on at the table. Uh, what What is the play element in your game? Is it tactical? Is it story? And is it, uh, to some extent, uh, interpersonal? I mean, if you've got a, a game where uh, you're playing about interpersonal dynamics, either because it's foregrounded, like in Drama System, in which case you have to do a whole web and a whole bunch of stuff, or if it's just a big part of it, like you're playing a sort of a Star Trek-y game, where uh, back and forth uh, and personal elements or like homicide where cops uh, getting on each other uh, is part of the, the game, then you need to provide some sort of a, a way in which the new guy can come in, be the new guy that can be fun and then stop being fun and, and then stop happening once it stops being fun. And that is uh, down to sort of everyone, you know, uh, doing their best job instead of falling back on sort of standard. Well, if I just make a Vulcan joke, it's going to kill. Well, Ken, you and I, uh, neither of us is the new person. We've both been doing this podcast for exactly as long as the other. Right. So we both know that when we get to about this point in the segment, we stop this segment. Then there's an exciting commercial message. And then I think there's going to be another segment, Ken. Yeah. And then maybe eventually a new person. Well, yeah, yeah. I think there will be <laughs> yeah. a new person. Come to think of it. You used to be a spy. You were part of the clandestine world, backed by the full strength of the security state. Then you asked the wrong questions. You found the truth. You found the vampires and got burned. You're all alone against them. One player, one game master. Create your own agent or take on the role of Layla Khan, ex-MI6 officer confronting her half-remembered past as a vampire thrall. Powered by the gumshoe one-to-one rules designed for the thrilling intensity of head-to-head -head play. Play through three complete adventures for Layla Khan or use them as templates to create your own mysteries. We'll give you the tools you need to battle the undead princes and crime lords. All alone. But will it be enough? Find out with Knights Black Agents Solo Ops. At your security cleared local retailer or from the Pelgrane store. The flickering gray fuzz. No, hold on. The um, uh, blank blue stare. No, hold on. The endless scrolling menu of Netflix. Welcome us once more <laughs> to the Orthicon tube-laden land of the television hut. And in the television hut, beloved Patreon backer Jeremy French asks Robin, you said TV series rarely have good climaxes. And I hope that it, it, he asked it in a... In a, in a straightforward voice, not the sort of whiny tone I just put on it. Why is this the case? And what are the good examples of it? There, that's good. That's, that's the Jeremy I know and love. Yeah. Uh, why, why are you right? And tell me why you're right, Robin. Uh, this is the kind of question that I, that I love to field, uh, Jeremy and Ken. Uh, so there's, there's two things uh, we're going to look at here. Uh, one is the episodic format show with iconic characters and why those are difficult to end. And then the uh, somewhat more mysterious question of why serialized narratives actually also turn out to uh, disappoint more often uh, than they satisfy. So let's go with the interesting structural issue, first of all, which is that 
an episodic show is designed to reiterate itself. And uh, these days, you have a lot of hybrid episodic shows with continuity added, which have uh, basically sprung up since the X-Files. And so the pattern there sort of gets a little bit mixed up. And uh, the X-Files introduced it. I think Alias really did a lot to uh, refine that Buffy formula. the Vampire and, Slayer, another early case. Yeah. Now, um, I don't know about Buffy because I was not a, a, I did not watch all of Buffy. But <gasps> ironically, for both X-Files and Alias, they both had uh, disappointing finales. As did Buffy. As did Buffy. <laughs> and the, re- the reason it's disappointing is that an iconic hero uh, is meant to uh, reiterate, recapitulate. They uh, are confronted with new problems and solve those problems by uh, turning their iconic ethos uh, loose on them. Uh, but uh, it turns out that when you have characters who are satisfyingly repeating the things that they do again and again, and this is as true for the people hanging out at the bar at Cheers, uh, as it is for uh, action-adventure characters, when they stop doing that, it's a bummer. Yeah. Uh, that, that that they have not... They've stopped becoming their characters. They've... Are they... Have they given up? Have they been destroyed? They exist in order to uh, do this thing, and now they're, in, they're not going to do this thing anymore for the external reason of, well, the show has come to a close. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, this assumes, of course, that they know sufficiently advanced that they're ending the series. Right. I mean, yeah, in in many ways, the best way for a show like that, an episodic show to end is just the way that real Star Trek ended, where they just stopped showing it. And Captain Kirk and Spock and Bones and everybody else are still on the five-year mission. They're just two more years you didn't get to see because you're not in a good world. It's the advantage of being canceled. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> with no continuity, exactly. Well, um, they, I mean, they had they had some continuity. They, they had any an emergent continuity, which is the best kind of continuity, um, right? But uh, which is a whole different segment. Um, but the uh, but the cancellation merely means that uh, they they exited the way they entered, solving problems and taking names. Yeah, they're still off to doing that thing, mm-hmm. uh, but they're just not. You're not going to be watching them do that. It's the most satisfying thing. It keeps them being who they are. Um, it doesn't uh, have to kill them off or. You know, they get kicked upstairs to be uh, admirals or go off and uh, run the medical academy or, or whatever. And, and, you know, and often it's like the group breaks up. So the, the ensemble that you've uh, enjoyed having them hang out together, well, they, they all go their separate ways. Well, that's also kind of a drag and not them. And so it's very hard to execute that. And uh, another problem, though, is just that even when you are moving uh, towards something where you could have... Uh, a climactic ending that would be satisfying. For example, in Alias, there are things that you could wrap up. You could wrap up all the continuity, and it might make sense that Sydney stops being a spy and they all go their separate ways. Right. Um, but typically, shows will just go, well, we're just going to keep repeating the formula and have every show be just a regular show until, like, right at the end, until, like, the two-part uh, big opening, uh, closing sequence. Right. In which, and then everything's all going to go cock-a-hoop. Uh, and so all of a sudden, the all the things that have to happen in order to have a satisfying ending happen at breakneck speed and uh, perhaps not with the uh, level of execution that you would need because they're still dealing with a a, a weekly television show budget. Right. So. And sometimes that that can work. I mean, I think that to the extent things in Next Generation ever succeeded, the ending succeeded doing almost exactly that. 
where they were, you know, going around solving things by sitting around and doing nothing for 80 million years or however long it was. And then they did that for two hours and they had all their little emotional uh, bits tied up with a butt with a bow. And it was it was a very satisfying way to stop watching The Next Generation. Uh, almost as satisfying as stopping earlier. Um, now, we've got two situations in progress where iconic shows with detailed continuities are in their final season. Uh, Supernatural is uh, doing that over the course of an entire season, and Arrow is doing it over the course of a half season. Mm-hmm. And it looks like Arrow, at least, is making the whole half season about the exit. Right. And uh, they're doing it in their usual way. Some parts of it really work, and other parts of it don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't look like they're just going to have regular episodes, and then at the end there's Crisis on Infinite right. Earths, and then, and then we're done. it's over yeah. and it's disappointing. Um, Flash is also... Uh, heavily foreshadowing Crisis on Infinite Earths, but clearly also it's like, and here's a regular show where they're just going to not act as if Flash thinks he's going to die in three weeks or, or mm-hmm. what have you. But that show's not ending, so right, yeah. that that's fine. Um, and uh, Supernatural uh, did that thing where it always does, where it sets up something at the end of the previous season, which you think is going to change the whole uh, dynamic entirely and then doesn't they solve that two episodes in and then right. they seem to go back to their regular thing but maybe they're not so it'll be very interesting as sort of a case study in both of those situations supernatural is an interesting case where they had a great ending at the ending of season five because that's what eric Kreider had sort of written the show to and then they spent a little while and i guess every audience member can decide what their meaning of a little while is realizing that oh we're very very successful we have to keep doing this and and so they've sort of done that. I think I mean, I, 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 I noped out of Supernatural a while ago, uh, mostly because the the iconic core activity got so tiresome, which is whining. But they would they would get to really good endings and then the show would keep going. So Supernatural almost has an oversupply of really great moments that could have ended the series and then didn't. Yes. And they've kind of made that into a yeah. feature. But Buffy like had a every- similar thing where the ending of seasons like three and five were both real killer and could have ended the show super well. And then they kept going. Right. And that's especially a thing with, with network television is that U S network shows are just going to drag it out as long as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. And by the time they decide to cancel you, you're all kind of tired of doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, you used uh, all your good ideas on the last two endings. Yeah. So there's a sense of fatigue. uh, See, see arrow. So that's that set of issues. Uh, The next set of issues is what if the show is very serialized? Why are they hard to uh, bring off? Well, first of all, often the even a serialized show has a repeated core activity and a uh, an ensemble of people who you want to see still be together so it's still a bummer uh you know when the cast of lost gets off the island speaking of lost though there's the other thing which is that often uh you get the sense that the uh, the finale was not planned from episode one, which they swear it was, but you can tell it's not because right. none of the things that they spend their last season on are anything that you've been set up to care about uh, in uh, in the first seasons. And, if, and of and, course, it's even worse if you did plan it from episode one and then the show organically moved away from what you're planned ending and you shoehorn it in anyway. How I Met Your Mother, I'm looking at you. <laughs> Uh, right. And so uh, you've got the and you've also got the endings that are that are cop outs. Right. So the, the Sopranos ending, you know, he couldn't couldn't bear to have that happen on screen. So it didn't. Mm-hmm. And, and again, that's a situation where you're sort of screwed either way. But uh, so uh, the difficulty of a long form narrative is that often the 
promise and the setup and the unanswered questions are more interesting uh, than the questions when you uh, set out to um, answer them. So there's certainly some uh, shows that famously and perfectly six feet under uh, had an amazing device that uh, uh, was able to sort of uh, fulfill uh, the thing that was part of the show all along while still uh, being very moving and giving you a sense that yes, these stories really have uh, ended not off, uh, necessarily all in the same uh, time frame. Um, and other shows just completely self-destruct and uh, it's it's like I don't know, is this even an ending? They're just giving up and leaving as in as in True Blood. But um, uh, uh, Mad Men, I think, uh, successfully uh, managed a variation of the, oh, and everybody's lives just continued, but there was a sort of a signal moment at the end that was, was a great was little... A visible break point. Yes, visible break yeah. point, a great little moment, and then, you know, nobody died or got exploded, and they, you know, if the series continued, they'd all, most of those characters would be back to work the next day, but mm -hmm. uh, you've uh, been part of their lives for a while, and you just have a very satisfying note. So, I guess that's an example of something where, you know, and that's just a dramatic show, it's not a genre show, so of course people's lives go on, Yeah, and you've only been... Uh, you get the sense that perhaps Don Draper has completed an emotional arc. I mean, I don't, uh, but I don't remember the ending of Mash. But at some point, the Korean War had to be over. Uh, the ending of Mash, of course, was a really big deal and a, an example of a show which uh, suddenly it became there was a big melodramatic thing that happens in the last episode and uh, all the sad farewells and it was a giant, much watched episode. Uh, but also, I think an early example of how unsatisfying it is to end a beloved ensemble show with a core activity. Yeah. But, but, but if the core activity is time delimited within the universe of the show, I'm not saying mash stuck the landing, right? I'm saying a show that is, everyone is at a Korean war military hospital ends in 1953, whether you want it to or not. Yes. Because and, and of course the show mash was right. many more years long. Yes. Yeah, so it was much longer than the Korean war. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but it, yes, but just because it has an obvious end point or, you know, Tony gets whacked uh, in the Sopranos, mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean that that's satisfying uh, to watch. And I think right. speaking yeah. of things going on for much too long, it's time for us to uh, get out of here. Uh, and So, uh, Robin, and Robin, if you will allow me, I will end this segment perfectly. You should wear more sweaters. The best of Ask the Gown is now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. 
And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive-thru. Make sure the stooges at the network don't cancel this podcast. Join such beloved Patreon backers as... Jacob Borsma. Tom Abella. Mike Merles. Rich Ranallo. And Ryan Mannix. Hey everybody, welcome to another segment of Ken and or Robin Talk to Somebody Else. And this time it's Robin uh, at the Schloss Neuhausen in Germany at the Kraken. And I'm talking to Pedro Ziviani. Thank you for joining us. Hello everyone. Uh, so uh, we're going to talk a, a bunch about your career as a designer and then uh, get to the uh, game you currently have uh, on a Kickstarter that Chaosium is going to publish. Uh, fans of Drama System uh, may know your series pitch, uh, Blood on the Snow, which in fact is the uh, title uh, pitch of the uh, uh, Drama System Companion. And uh, that is uh, delves into the uh, Viking sagas. And uh, I understand, uh, I guess first of all, we should say that you're day job is in video gaming that's right and, yes. you, and your side gig is in tabletop of various <laughs> varieties including uh, role-playing uh, so uh, tell the folks at home why you are interested in uh, Icelandic sagas well um, I always found uh, the Icelandic sagas to be really interesting because they combine both uh, so great characters and also great action scenes uh, very dramatic moments and uh, for many years I tried all sorts of Viking games and uh, I liked some better than others and it led to me actually making a pitch to Chaosium to write uh, a Mythic Iceland book for the basic role-playing system and that uh, came out in um, 2012 so it's been a few years, and I'm now working on a second edition for uh, that book from Mythic Eisen that will come out uh, for the RuneQuest line of uh, Fantasy Earth books. And uh, and in order to get your research really right, you moved permanently to Iceland, which I think is <laughs> a sign of great dedication. Yeah, yeah, it's a sign of commitment right there. <laughs> right. Uh, so what is it about uh, the Icelandic sagas, first of all, as a... a source of role-playing that is really fascinating? What would you use to sell uh, a group of players on this is the thing we want to play next? Mm -hmm. uh, I, <clears throat> that, the period of the sagas is really interesting uh, because at that time there is really no central government in Iceland. Uh, it is uh, famously said at the time that they have no king, only law. So there's a lot of uh, uh, leeway there for the players to really influence society and uh, the, the big movers and shakers in the country. Uh, there are also no villages or, or towns, there's only isolated farms, and I find that um, setting to be so different from everything else medieval in Europe at the time, or, or the fantasy settings we're used to. Uh, and there's so much um, also to do with the sense of honor uh, and, and uh, also hospitality and all those Viking Norse values. Uh, it, it makes for very interesting role-playing uh, when you uh, take into account all those passions and values and also 
uh, of the fighting and, and of the blood lust in a way that the Vikings are well known for. <laughs> and so what does it mean specifically that there's, or, or what are the consequences of there being no kings, only law? Um, well, everything at that period is, is decided on, on, on assemblies. There's a national assembly and the, the seasonal assemblies. And uh, there's a complicated societal you know, arrangement and that people need to have uh, all the support for their own uh, actions and, and court cases. And uh, that mechanic to, to have the players uh, also have to think about the influence of their, what they are doing in the opinions of others makes it really interesting in a dramatic sense to, to move uh, the objective forward in other ways that are beyond just the sword and shield. Um, so if you're going to have a big dramatic uh, uh, scenario that where the climax is at the National Assembly, what is a, a sort of plot line that that could possibly revolve around. Mm -hmm. I like to think of uh, stories in, in, in Iceland always starting small. You know, someone's sheep have, have gone missing. It always starts with a sheep. <laughs> yes. And uh, that leads to uh, some revenge killing and then uh, inevitably you also get some mythical components mixed in. You know, some uh, hidden people, the Icelandic version of the elves, maybe some trolls. And uh, when the tensions get too high, uh, people then uh, decide to take a, a court case to the assembly and as you do that you need support for the community to be able to win the court case so the players have to go around and talk to all the influential people and uh, maybe do some tasks for them, uh, compensate them somehow to get the support. There's, uh, Amit Kaisen, there's a whole system about how to run a court case and how to influence it out of court as well and I find that fascinating. Uh, so I heard all of our listeners' ears perk up when you said there's an Icelandic version of Trolls and Elves. How do the Icelandic uh, versions of those differ from the ones they may be familiar with from just broad, generalized Norse mythology? Mm -hmm. So the elves are really interesting. They are mostly known as the hidden folk, and they are invisible to, to humans most of the time. And the houses uh, are seen as just big boulders in the countryside, big rocks. They can make themselves seen sometimes, and they are supposedly guardians of great wisdom and magic. Uh, they often help people. They can also uh, be quite dangerous if angered. But there's a whole uh, interesting culture. So the idea in, in, in Mythic Iceland, when I developed that myth a little bit more, is that the elves came from Alfheimer, the, the world of the elves, and uh, started mimicking the 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 uh, society of the humans of the Norse so they have uh, sort of their own ways everything is similar but, but slightly different and uh, the trolls are often actually are friends of people as well they live up in the mountains and they turn into stone in the sunlight but they have uh, they are more, more loners than the elves but they have an interesting society right and so that's, that's the so. image that Tolkien borrows later that's right yeah um, so, uh, you uh, currently have a Kickstarter running for your game, The Red Tread of Fate. Uh, so, uh, uh, people are obviously going to hear this and go and check and look at the campaign, but uh, what is Red Tread of Fate? Okay, so the Red Tread of Fate is a narrative board game in, uh, set in uh, Heian period Japan, so that's around uh, 900s. It's a golden age of Japanese culture. 
and uh, the players uh, have the uh, characters that are uh, shape shifting animals, right? They are trying to reattach the red string of fate that links uh, people who are meant to be together. So strange lovers that have, uh, for some reason or another, had the, the string of fate stretch and, and uh, get cut. And now the, the, the players are working to, to put the, the people back together. The game central mechanic uh, is around the Japanese uh, love poetry from that period, from the 900s. And um, the concept there is that the, the god of the moon has heard the, the sorrow in the hearts of the people who, who are now uh, apart and uh, has tasked this group of mythic creatures, the, the, the shape-shifting Henge, to uh, work to put those people together to reattach the string of fate. So there's a set of cards on the table and uh, that... Uh, delineates uh, seven, uh, five um, stages that the players need to to overcome of obstacles to get those ch those five people the, sorry the, those two people together the, the two lovers and um, you actually uh, drag a, a, a string a red thread through the cards that that uh, works to string along the the modifiers in each of the cards as you review them and it's also you know, a, a representation of what the characters are doing in the game, reattaching the string. So a card-based <coughs> board game based on high-end era Jap uh, love poetry. Yes. How did you arrive at that premise? What made you want to create uh, uh, this game? Well, I had uh, recently been to Japan uh, before I started the design of the game and uh, had um, been to uh, high-end uh, reenactment during a festival and was really fascinated with uh, everything about it. And it you know, kept uh, in my mind uh, something I should explore more. And uh, I really started working uh, towards that during uh, a game design contest, the Game Chef contest, uh, in that uh, people are given a set of ingredients to work on, uh, and you have nine days to design a game. And uh, I remember reading the list of, of ingredients and thinking, wow, I'm not sure about this, and I don't know if I have the time. But a few days later, the idea just kept growing in my mind, and I had to sit down and get it out. And, uh, and so what were the, the ingredients in this game, particular Game Chef? So the theme for that year, it was 2017, uh, was boundaries. So I explored that as, as the liminal side of, uh, of the Henge themselves, the creatures in between being gods and, and, and spirits, animals, and... and uh, and uh, people, because they can also shapeshift. And uh, some of the ingredients were things that, that became cards in the game, either as powers or, or uh, situational cards, things like uh, smoke and echo. Um, and uh, the string itself was one of the components. Uh, a string, so that uh, also matched what I had in my mind, and it, it, it actually came quite naturally. It was a, one of those uh, design exercises when things just seem to come almost ready to you. You know, you just uh, channel it into the so uh, table. Now, uh, this is a uh, a competitive game, a board game, and therefore something that requires even more extensive uh, playtesting than a uh, right. role-playing uh, supplement. So uh, what was the uh, testing, because pr presumably the game chef period doesn't give you time to really test 
the game and you had to then decide that you had something on your hands. No, that's true. Yeah, I, I had to get as many uh, playtest sessions as possible during that those few days. And uh, the way the contest works is that each each person who submits a game then needs to playtest uh, four games and submit the, uh, the evaluations of each of those games. So it was also interesting to uh, pretty much immediately get uh, feedback from people you know, related to me and playing the game. And um, I was very happy when the game won first place. Uh, there was, if I can remember correctly, 76 games submitted that year. So that's already a big selling point. Uh, this is mm -hmm. the best one out of 76. And how did the, uh, how did you then move on to refine its design based on feedback? What were the big design issues that you needed to uh, fix along the way as you continued to work on it? Well, people wanted uh, more of some things, more options for player characters, more of the uh, shape-shifting animals. So I designed a few more of those. And uh, the biggest challenge, I think, was really the difficulty curve. So one way to, to deal with that was to add some more cards to the game or with the different values that you need to match as you, uh, as you use your powers to, to face the obstacles so that the players can pick and choose the, the, the right range of values for the, the challenge cards for the level of difficulty they're looking for. So you can start with a, an easier game and as you uh, get more mastery of how the game works, you can uh, remove the, the lower difficulty cards from the game and, and add the higher ones. And how would you describe the experience of playing the game? Is it a fast-moving game, a contemplative game? What is the emphasis uh, when you're encountering it as a player? Mm -hmm. So the game um, takes about 40 minutes to play and um, part of the uh, each phase of the game is, is reading uh, Japanese poetry of the period and um, using that to frame each of the scenes that you role play through. And uh, it, uh, one comment that I have often heard from people is that it's a very sort of wholesome experience because you're trying to get people back together, make people happy. And uh, the the Henge player characters, the shape-shifting animals themselves, have uh, uh, a selection of powers that is very amusing to use often. So it's a very light-hearted game. Now, the complexity level, when I hear wholesome, I think, uh, can kids play this? How, uh, how young a player can... Uh... Uh, uh, jump in and play this? Yes, uh, uh, kids can absolutely play it. There is uh, some uh, complexity in just uh, interpreting the, the, the poetry and also the uh, tactics that are involved on the dice rolling and, and matching uh, your, your powers to the cards. But uh, we've, I, I've had uh, kids uh, around 9, 10 playing and enjoying it a lot. And uh, are there uh, plans for uh, additional elements that will appear over the course of the Kickstarter? Or is this uh, basically a locked uh, product that you're uh, you just using the Kickstarter as a way to achieve uh, awareness and uh, sort of a, a pre-order system? Well, uh, we have plans to offer more of the, the player character cards, so different... Um, Henge, the shape-shifting animals, they have different powers. So the initial ones include uh, animals such as the cat, badger, um, the um, raccoon dog, uh, and, and others. And for the expansions, I've, I'm planning a, a few more unusual animals, uh, spider, dolphin, uh, crane, and so on. And they all have uh, powers that are based in Japanese folklore. 
So we're planning to have some stretch goals that are uh, more player character cards and also some more of the broken-hearted cards that are the people that are trying to get back together that had the, the red string of fate. So, so people really broken. find this will be much more heartbreak. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, thank you uh, very much, uh, uh, Pedro, for stopping by. We'll make sure to put a link to the uh, red thread of fate, uh, which I think I mispronounced earlier, at Kickstarter. So thanks a lot, Pedro. Thanks, Robin. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. It's time once more for that most ill-defined of hot shots, where we don't know what quite fits in, except everything's weird. And, uh, oh, wait, we're going to look out the window, and there is the alien big cat. He's screaming out on the moor. And, oh, wait, in the corner, there's the gray alien and the Nordic alien. They're drinking a kombucha together. And, as usual... Uh, slagging off the uh, reptilian alien because we are in the elliptony hut. But Ken, we're in a particularly hushed, quiet version of the elliptony hut because we're here. We're here to. It's a, a hut specific to the recorded medium because we're here to talk about row dive voices, yes. or as they're sometimes known, electronic voice phenomena. Row dive, of course, is <laughs> because uh, the, because they predate Constantine row dive, so it seems fair. To have a general name as well. Uh, it seems fair, but Constantine Raudive is a name so good you couldn't make it up. No, so. absolutely. No, you, if you are given the great gift of the name Constantine Raudive, you name things after it. That's fair. That's legitimate. Right. So, uh, so I guess uh, what we're leading to is tell us who Constantine Raudive was. Okay. Constantine Raudive was a uh, Latvian. Um, he was a guy who was interested in parapsychology. He was a Jungian uh, psychologist, among other bad habits. And <laughs> he became fascinated with the notion, um, as I guess too much Jung will, will do for you, of things that last longer than the individual, uh, that, uh, that there might be ghosts. And who doesn't love ghosts? So his idea was, if people you, being haunted by them, first of all, if but- you recorded uh, the, uh, the world around you where there are ghosts, uh, they will show up on recording media because the uh, ghosts, uh, interact with the real world, which means that they will emit sounds and possibly they will be c- trying to communicate with you. And it is only your sort of, um, what do I want to say? Uh, ultra, uh, spiritual hearing that allows you to sense that there are ghosts at all. And if the ghosts exist as electronic phenomena or even as a, uh, 
as something that uh, influences electronic phenomena as a as as a transmitter or a or a magnet, uh, then you will be able to detect their presence with uh, noises and um, uh, with the noises that they make, with the emissions that they make. And he teamed up with a, a former Nazi named Hans Bender, who was a, a parapsychologist and studied uh, astrology and psychology and dowsing and all manner of good things and uh, did not learn his lesson after the war and went on to uh, help Constantine Raudive uh, record voices. Um, and then uh, Raudive also worked with another guy uh, named uh, Friedrich Jurgensen, who did um, a book called Voices from Space, which was about alien transmissions or Maybe they're not aliens. We don't know. They're voices from space. And so he, uh, and he had set up big recordings to record aliens. And Rout I've said, well, this same technology should work for ghosts, which I guess you can't deny. <laughs> right. So the, so this brings us to the question, is it ghosts posing as aliens? Is it a- aliens posing as ghosts? Who can say? Both can be ultra terrestrials, of course. So, uh, uh, just to uh, put a time note on this, uh, Raudive's book Breakthrough comes out in 1971. Yeah, he's doing his research in the late 60s, so he's ideal for Fall of Delta Green characters. And it's not clear to me whether uh, he thinks that ghosts know what recorded media are, or if just that uh, ghosts are constantly sort of murmuring very quietly, but uh, we just don't notice because we're busy doing podcasts right. um, or uh, listening to music. And if we just make everything very, very quiet, so quiet uh, that you can just hear uh, what, uh, you know, fun runners would just call uh, electrical anomalies or, or fail points on magnetic tape, that that's uh, when, you know, you suddenly listen very uh, carefully. And so he reported hearing voices in various different languages. He said there are very clear languages, not in a way that, you know, simple pareidolia would explain, but you would just leave out. A, a tape and would be recording away. He could say you, you could use it with or without the microphone, um, which of course gets us to the interesting question of do the ghosts know about recording technology and are they consciously using it or are you just eavesdropping on, on them? But eventually, if you leave the tape running long enough and listen to it long enough, you will hear something according to uh, electronic voice phenomena theory. And so you'll just be listening to a bunch of garble and all of a sudden it will be Cannon Robin eat donuts in hell. And then you trying to interpret what that means that can't be hell that's that's wrong right there um well, and the he ghosts did, are not necessarily you know all knowing he did he did some uh some experiments that at least threw a salute in the direction of science in that he did some of his recordings in uh radio frequency screened uh rooms so that you don't get sort of stray radio transmission uh that comes in and it gets picked up by your tape recorder that can happen very easily apparently it happens a lot with meteors um, they, they fly into the atmosphere and they sort of set off radio waves just at random. And then some of those radio waves can sound like people, uh, not because people live on meteors. Yeah. We are meteors. We eat donuts in hell. Because meteors kill ghosts in the atmosphere. That's why. Yeah. And uh, some of his si- his science was, you know, relatively close to science. He said that uh, voices of the ghosts, and this is the most interesting th- to me, speak in a definite rhythm which seems forced on them. And that implies to me that when you act to tune in the ghost, you are constraining the ghost towards communication, that it's a, it's a two way system that the ghost is not just sitting there saying, can and Robin eat donuts in hell, can and Robin eat donuts in hell, but is just making sort of ghost noises. And the act of tuning in creates that channel that the ghost is then forced into 
uh, that, uh, that, that rhythm and that pattern, which causes their phrases to be pithy and telegrammatic as opposed to discursive the way that, uh, you or I might talk if we were sitting around, uh, decades after our death and bored. Right. Um, and therefore atypical of a lot of ghosts who, uh, you know, when it's, you're using automatic writing or, or, uh, channeling, those guys just won't shut up. No, they, they go on, uh, endlessly and they all want to talk about how you should organize society. Yes. Uh, whereas uh, these, uh, it's it's obviously more of a strain to uh, leave audio uh, behind than it is to make somebody's hand move or to just tell them what you're thinking about uh, the root bases. Uh, so Radov used uh, not just uh, uh, tape recorders, but also another uh, technique is to tune a radio between stations. And uh, I don't know how, how you'd ever get weird sounds or voices doing that. That seems odd. But also just uh, a, a diode system where you have a, a crystal... Uh, radio crystal uh, on receiver not receiving anything and then all of a sudden it receives uh, uh, ghost voices the radio method of uh, getting evp uh, was perfected if that's the word i want by a medium named william o'neill who worked with a retired electronics engineer sometimes described as an industrialist george meek so we know who's funding it um, and they built something called the Spiricom using instructions that o'neill had channeled from a dead scientist named george mueller and, uh, in 1980, he built Spiricom one and, uh, they, uh, got all the way up to Spiricon Mark four by 1982. Uh, the Spiricom tunes in ghosts on the 29.5 megahertz band. And that is where you tune in your ghosts. If you're looking for it, uh, creates, um, multiple frequency white noise tones that basically like on Star Trek blank out all the other white noise in a room and leave only the ghosts speaking. And if you thought that uh, Star Trek technology wouldn't let you talk to ghosts, I guess you're not as smart as dead George Miller. Uh, well, it's, it's obvious the fact that he, he uh, got these plans uh, to us from the other side indicate, you know, that's, that's self-proving right there. There's, that's irrefutable. It is irrefutable. I think that's yes. technically true. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> this is a cool ability, first of all, for you to, uh, give the psychic player in your group in, uh, the esoterrorists, uh, the ability to, um, receive round eye voices is one of the possible psychic powers that you might have. Because, of course, uh, this is in the long tradition of GM gift. Uh, so that, uh, when you're stumped for the next clue, uh, you can tune in your right eye voices and it says, Ken and Robin eat donuts in hell and go to the old mill. And uh, that can be something where, like any of these abilities, uh, you have to make sure that it's not uh, too easy or too often relied upon, uh, meaning that you give it a cost and there's a risk to it each time because, you know, you're tuning in ghosts. Well, not all of those ghosts have your best interest at heart as player characters. Uh, some of them may be, uh, you know, angry ghosts. They may be trying to mess with you. So, um, yes, uh, going to the old mill uh, forwards the story, but you don't know that the uh, that the ghosts aren't also, you know, phoning up the uh, outer dark entities and going, okay, I sent them to the old mill. Get ready. So you've got that that uh, fun uh, idea. Now you mentioned that uh, Radov is active in the uh, the late '60s. So what uh, particular fall mm -hmm. of Delta Green scenario? Uh, if it's not just a a a character ability that they can sometimes draw upon to make the, the story move forward. Uh, what sort of uh, specific plot could you uh, wrap around this? I mean, you can, you can have a couple of things. Uh, Raudive is working in Sweden, uh, which as we know is where the cult of transcendence is headquartered. Uh, so he may be actually 
picking up the uh, mutterings of the court of Azathoth as all the discarnate people flood into it. Um, the discarnate evil sorcerers flood into it, or he might be picking up the words of Nirlathotep. This is a way that Nirlathotep is channeling things. Or he might be, you know, genuinely getting people who are dying in these horrific circumstances, and it's the specific way that they're magically humanly sacrificed that is allowing their voices to be picked up by Raudive's equipment. And so it may be that Raudive is a sort of a deep cover source that Delta Green uses, uh, like the listening stations that were on the borders of the Soviet Union. You would get the the uh, the chatter, um, the product, uh, and then sift through them and figure out which of these means something. So if it's people who are being human sacrificed by the cult of transcendence are being picked up on Raudive's tapes, Raudive's tapes are getting rerouted or stolen, or even he's giving them to Delta Green. It could be a, we've picked up chatter that says X, this guy just got human sacrificed. He was from Osaka, Japan. Go find out what's going on in Osaka, Japan, that he would have led him to near Lothotep worship so we can close off that channel. And that can be a, you know, the same sort of go to the old mill type uh, ghost clue. And then at some point, once they get dependent on these, on the, on the intel to give them information and help them out. Now, Raudive is under threat and uh, the, the cult is onto him and you have to go to Sweden and either extract him or uh, uh, destroy his uh, equipment so, such that he's no longer a threat or uh, do something else. Who can say what you have to do? But the notion of uh, Raudive as a uh, border listener, I think, is more interesting than just, you know, the ghosts told you about the deep ones in the old mill uh, situation. I, I, I like the... The, the, the coincidence that he's in Uppsala and the, um, uh, and the cult is practically next door in Stockholm. Now, the, the other obvious thing we have to say this so that our listeners don't, uh, ask us why we didn't say it is you can also do the ring. And yeah. the, the person who found the tape has been found, uh, you know, blasted into a, a million shards. And, uh, there's this tape where a- anyone who listens to it, something terrible happens to them. And, uh, it attracts the hounds of Tyndalos or something. Bad. Yes. Uh, and so uh, there's the obvious thing of you have to uh, track down the tape. And, uh, you, of course, there's a device that uh, either you just have the, all the characters roll their resistance to see which of them is the one who actually gets too curious and listens to the tape. Or there's some other, uh, you know, uh, trick that causes the, the, the tape to be listened to. Or, uh, oh, guess what? There's somebody tuning in in Oslo and they just happen to hit the right signals and they've recorded it. No, oh, no, there's another tape. And so... Uh, that's, you know, the most obvious thing is to turn uh, the uh, the tape with the e- uh, electronic voice phenomena on it into a uh, into a MacGuffin, a deadly MacGuffin that will uh, drive you insane uh, while telling you that you eat donuts in hell. Yeah. And what better thing for a deadly MacGuffin yes. to tell you? And um, uh, and follows yeah. up on a callback previously in the episode, therefore showing we know how to end things here, Ken. Exactly. And therefore, this is the end of this episode. But unlike shows with a finale... Uh, we're just going to keep right on, and we're going to be back uh, at the bar, back for at the our next advertising agency, wherever that is, a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Prevent this podcast from diminishing to ghostly whispers by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Scott Stefanski. James Stewart. Jason Franzella. Derek 
McMullen. And Yadge from Edinburgh. Show your holiday superiority with a gift of Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest design, Dreamhound. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. 